sweet land of liberty, our founding fathers not only pledged, but gave their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor to obtain our God-given liberty. Now it's our turn. Liberty can only thrive if it's alive in the hearts of a freedom-loving people. I'm Dan Matthews, and I'm pleased to welcome you to Freedom's Ring. Here's our host and constitutional lawyer and minister, Alan Reinach. Welcome back to Freedom's Ring, my friends. We have a very sobering topic for you today because we believe that we are in very, very difficult times, times that the Bible prophets foretold nearing the return of Jesus Christ. And so I've asked my good friend and colleague, Greg Hamilton, president of the Northwest Religious Freedom Association, to have a conversation with me. We're calling it Beast Talk. Welcome back to Freedom's Ring, Greg. Thank you. So, beast talk. What beast are we talking about? Well, in Revelation, the beast is in reference, always in reference to kingdoms, nations, tribes, powers that be, and more specifically, it's referring to in Revelation 12 onward, chapter 12 and then 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, it's referring to a specific time period. All the Reformers, including even way before Reformers, referred to a system whereby a church controls the state or manipulates, dominates, and controls emperors and kings, and they are excommunicated or they're tried for heresy and burnt at the stake. That was the essence of it, and that they labeled the beast. Now, it's interesting because John the Revelator, when he was writing about the beast, that was just a code term for Rome. In fact, it was a language that could protect the Christian church from being persecuted any more than it already was. And so it was really sort of a a politically correct way, uh, a code language to uh, basically pass on and spread to all the believers that this is what what this was. It's a beast. And so it's a matter matter of historical reality that the church during the Middle Ages— did exercise an awful lot of power over emperors and such. There was a very close, uh, you know, almost a union of church and state, if you will, a lot of civil authority granted to the church, and of course, a lot of persecution. But then at the end of Revelation 13, it talks about a different power forming an image of the beast. Well, the image is in reference to the future modern times, and it's referring specifically in Revelation 13, 11, 15, to the rise of the lamb-like beast that would come out of the earth. And the earth is a significant term because the earth is in reference to a particular power whereby citizenship was based on whether you owned property or not. And that definitely designates the beginnings of the United States of America. You could not vote or be a citizen unless you own property. The earth is a very significant term there. And so I've always understood it to be when the image to the beast rises in Revelation 13, 14, it's in reference to those who will not yield to the united church and state power in which actually the church or the religious powers that be, evangelical Protestants and conservative Catholics find common cause, even if those causes are quote-unquote good and moral, they find common cause to control, to manipulate, dominate, and control the civil government, both at the federal and state level. And so it's a significant prophecy, 
And it's something that I see uh, developing every day here in the United States. Well, and this is why we need to have this conversation. In the language of the text, it says that this beast with the lamb-like horns will exercise all the authority of the first beast in its presence. And the first beast exercised both civil and religious authority and, you know, by extension, military authority because it, you know, really controlled the emperors in making like the Crusades, for example, and and directing that they should go and fight the infidels. You know, we are seeing the rising power of the church. The church has been lamenting the moral decline of our society And the remedy that it is pursuing is not merely a spiritual remedy, but it's to gain political power. Um, Some thoughts, Greg, on the futility of political power to solve moral problems. Well, the political power, it just only creates partisanship and it only creates division. And so, you know, in a democratic republic such as ours, it's very possible, as it happened in Greek societies and uh, later in Roman societies, for a significant minority to actually control and rule. And it's all about uh, who has the vision, who has the vision cast for an upwardly mobile, moral state or society. And, of course, they will point to, you know, the degradation of society. Uh, they'll point to same-sex marriage. They'll point to abortion They'll point to all the issues that are the hot-button issues of the day and say that we're the true patriots, we're the true Americans, uh, the rest of them can pack up and go home where they came from, essentially. And it basically is a system whereby they are arrayed against religious uh, dissenters, religious minorities, ethnic minorities, secular humanists, and the same-sex community. And that's, ironically, that's what we saw in the days of Hitler. Uh, prior to the days of Hitler, you had the Weimar Republic, and in the Weimar Republic, you had the most advanced liberal system emerging of any country in the world, and uh, there was a lot of Lutheran theologians, Catholic theologians, that were very upset with the trends of the day, and they decided to um, buy into a potential dictator uh, and Hitler, and they propped him up, and they made him the Fuhrer of the country, and the rest is history. And when you have that kind of uniting of church and state, uh, with Hitler, the state pretty much controlled the church after that, to the dismay of the church and the religious powers of the day. But, you know, we're told it's going to be just the opposite in the United States of America, where the where the religious powers of the church so controls the civil government that it basically gets the civil government to do its bidding at all levels, whether it's the Supreme Court in joining church and state in so many different ways, or whether it's Congress, um, or whether it's through the executive branch, through executive orders, and so forth. There's even another, let me finish this one point, sure. even a, a wing right now in which there's uh, a, and I read this in Foreign Affairs Journal, ironically, is that there's another wing that's uh, attempting to basically theologize foreign policy. In other words, there's a there's a there's an attempt both on the left and the right, the left with more of a humanitarian focus uh in terms of, you know, um directing our efforts to understand the religions of the day. Uh, Madeleine Albright is the leader of this, former Secretary of State, where you understand 
Islam, you understand Hinduism, you understand all these religions, and use that as a means to develop peace initiatives and to lead towards world peace. Okay, that's the left version. And then there's the right-wing version, which is basically, what can we do to advance Christianity? And of course, the first thing they point to is, Christians are being persecuted all around the world, so let's make that our focus and champion the defense of Christians around the world. And so there's these two approaches to these two faith-based approaches to directing foreign policy, U.S. foreign policy in particular. So it's a, so it's a uh, dynamic okay. that's, that's very real. That's very interesting. I don't know that, you know, we're here today to choose among these competing uh, approaches. I want to bring us back to the text, because one thing that I think a lot of times Christians miss in reading this is the notion that this power that forms an image of the beast, several times the text says it makes everyone worship the beast. And we know basic, basic doctrine, the worship of anything but God is idolatry. So this is, uh, but we also know from Jesus that the apostasy of the last days is in his name. He says, many will come in my name and deceive many. So we know that there well, is this scenario. Let me just get this out. There's a scenario of a an idolatrous worship, and yet it's Christian. It's really the worship of political power and, you know, the powers that be, the earthly powers in the name of Jesus. And those who are dissenters who don't worship they're the ones who are on the receiving end of the sanctions, which are described in Revelation 13, first in harsh economic terms, can't buy or sell, and then ultimately subject to the death penalty. They're to be killed. So you have this enforced worship. That's what it says, enforced worship. That's where it's headed when you have the church pursuing political power. And that's really my concern. Our concern here is not you know, Democrats or Republicans, left or right, it's the abuse. Yes, but you have to understand something here, Alan. Alan, there has to be something that's understood. You see, there's not going to be very many dissenters left because the word fire in Revelation 13, 13 points to a charismatic movement that unites both left and right. You see, the left is very much engaged, uh, and they put forth their own moral worldview, okay? Uh, they put forward their own moral worldview and claim it's just as moral, more moral than the right. And so be it, whatever. The point is, in the end, that fire that pretends to come from the throne of God itself in Revelation 13, 13, is what unites left and right together to persecute the few left that are discerning of the problem. And so what you have is you have a uniting of Pharisees and Sadducees, the chief priests and the Pharisees, the ruling nobles of Christ's day, uniting for a common cause over nationalism, basically to crucify Christ that's getting in the way of, of their power and position and their standing. And uh, that's essentially what happens in the last days. You have a uniting of left and right together for a common nationalistic cause. And no matter what that issue is, whether some Christians believe it's a Sunday law or whatever, the point is, is that it is a coming together of people of faith in order to manipulate and control the will of government. And I think it comes about through natural disasters. I really believe natural disasters is the crux 
that unites both left and right together. I mean, after 9-11, what did we have? We had it coming together, the whole nation. I mean, nobody disagreed over the Patriot Act at the time or any other issue that came out of Congress as a response to the events of 9-11. I think you're going to see that happen again. And I really think it's going to be quick and much faster than people realize. I don't know for sure if you're right about the natural disaster thing, but your insight about the fire, I think, is really, really key. You know, the book of Revelation is a Jewish book, and it borrows imagery heavily from the Old Testament. And this business of, as it says in Revelation 13, fire coming down from heaven in the sight of men to deceive men, to have them make the image of the beast and worship the beast in its image, well, that takes in the story of Elijah on Mount Carmel. And who was the true God? The one that brought fire down from heaven. So, well, and that word, that Greek word fire is pura. And that word that says in the Greek lexicon and in the Vines Expository Dictionary, it says this is no ordinary fire. This is a supernatural fire. And it has a twofold definition. It's not only the charismatic movement, this false spirit, and that's what that word fire means. And it refers directly to Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, these tongues of fire, these cloven tongues of fire for people's head. It's a charismatic thing, but this time it's a false spirit. And it's a false spirit that deceives the world. And what's interesting is this fire directly also refers to Lucifer or Satan attempting to personate Christ's second coming. We're told in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14, and no wonder for Satan himself comes as an angel of light. Okay, so this light and fire, it's all synonymous, and it's what deceives the whole world. He'll come working miracles. He'll bring about world peace. Everybody will look to him. It's all part of the package. And um, so that word fire is the clincher in Revelation 13. Well, we could keep this discussion going a long time. I'm wondering about the takeaway here, but I think if there is a key premise in this discussion about the beast and the image of the beast, it's the dangers of the church seeking and gaining political power. And that's what we're seeing. And, you know, it may use it for purposes that Christians think are good, but that's also part of the deception. We've called this segment Beast Talk. My guest, Greg Hamilton, president of the Northwest Religious Liberty Association. This has been Freedom's Ring. I'm your host, Alan Reinach. Until next week, let freedom ring.